Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. Today on 30 Minutes, we'll be hearing three stories from City High School. Student Stefano Pancheson produced this first story as part of a history project for a sophomore humanities class. His class, led by teacher Dylan Martino, was studying the cultural legacies behind place names in Tucson. Stefano decided to look into the story behind the Allende Footbridge, a small, easy-to-miss walkway in the heart of downtown. I live in Tucson, Arizona. Tucson is a diverse metropolis of half a million people, but it wasn't always this way. 239 years ago, Tucson was somewhat cooler, a whole lot emptier, and way less European. There were Native American settlements nearby and a Jesuit mission, but at the Presidio of Tucson, there wasn't much to see, aside from a small group of tents in the desert. Maybe if you were lucky, you'd get to see a jackrabbit running around, or you'd eat some cactus roots. This was the situation in 1777, when a man named Captain Don Pedro de Allende took command of the Presidio, the original fort of Tucson. The first thing he did was get people to work on building a wall at the fort. Heck, before he got there, not a single brick was laid. He was a hard-working and determined man, but his methods were harsh and people resented him. Allende was always fighting the invading Apaches, who regularly threatened to destroy his fort. One time, he fought off 300 Apaches with only 15 of his men. He cut off the Apache leader's head and hung it above the gate at the Presidio. I'm telling you all this stuff about Allende, but honestly, until I took an American history class a few months ago, I had no idea who this guy was. I'm not sure many people really do. It's crazy. My mom has lived here in Tucson her whole life, and she doesn't even know him. One day in my class, my history teacher said that there was a footbridge near the school named after Allende, so I went down to see it. The bricks and concrete arch slightly over a skinny street called Pennington. A small metal plate tells you the name of the bridge and a few facts about Allende. The bridge is sturdy but boring to look at. It lacks color and the sun makes it too hot to want to stay to read the plaque. I wondered if anybody crossing this bridge ever stops to think about Allende and his legacy. So I stood in it with my recorder and interviewed people walking by. Uh, do you know what the name of this footbridge is? I do not. Nope. I don't. <sighs> no. 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 Uh, um, no. Uh, I do not. Only place we can go to smoke. <laughs> no, I don't know nothing about it. Just say a landmark. Name of the footbridge? Mm -hmm. No, I don't, ma'am. I walk it every day. Nobody had a clue about the name of the bridge or who Allende was. The plaque on the bridge went unnoticed, I guess. Do you know who Pedro Allende is? Nope. No. 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 <laughs> no, I'm embarrassed. Mm -mm. I do not. No. I don't know anything about him. The plaque on the bridge tells the story of Ayande's biggest battle with the Apaches. On May 1st, 1782, 600 Apache warriors attacked the fort. They shot an arrow through Ayande's leg. He limped around and still managed to fight them off, even though he was in pain and only had 20 men. Because of this battle, Ayanda has his little footbridge named after him in Tucson. I've been thinking a lot about this and wondering if he was a good person to memorialize in this way. I could say he saved Tucson from the Apaches, but starting a European settlement here has caused a lot of harm to Native peoples, and not just the Apaches. Because of European colonization, Native Americans have lost power, culture, and land. And this has its roots in Ayanda's actions. Should we really be praising or memorializing that? I asked people on the bridge what they thought. This bridge is actually uh, memorializing him. Do you think we should memorialize him? Why or why not? 
Ah, it doesn't make any difference to me. Um, well, all I know is what you've just told me. Um, and I think that any history that is based on abuse and using other people should be questioned. And I don't think we should memorialize something when there was harm intended in its creation. Um, so. I really don't have an opinion on that because you kind of caught me off guard here. But so, you know, I mean, I hear your side of the story. So I guess I would need a little more information before I could make a better informed decision. I think it's right. He fought for that right. And I think it's right on. Nah, it's cool. Uh, I think it should be. And why do you think so? Because uh, he helped establish this place. I uh, really can't answer that. I just don't know enough about him. So I wouldn't, I don't have an opinion on it. That's a good question, bro. I stay in the way, yeah. I don't, I don't think you should glorify him, but that's part of Tucson history. It's part of what made Tucson what it is now. Look at it this way. American history is full of that. I don't think it's right. A lot of things was wrong with history. A lot of wrong. And a lot of Indians pay for it. A lot of Native Americans pay for it, and they're still paying for it now. Just look what's happening to the Dakotas right now with the oil pipeline. Same thing. Okay. Uh, far just bridge-wise, I really, like I said, I don't really know the whole total history of it. Didn't 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 have a clue. Never really cared. But you you opened my eyes, bro. You opened my eyes today. I had hoped the answers that I got from the people on the bridge would make it clear. They didn't, though. Instead, it made me realize something: that he wasn't necessarily right or wrong. Obviously, it's wrong that he kickstarted a society that put Native Americans at a disadvantage. But as a result, a lot of people have homes, jobs, schools, and a life here in Tucson. Of course, he should have treated his workers better. But he also saved them from being killed by the Apaches. Maybe it was bad for him to kill the Apaches, but did he really have a choice when they continued to raid the fort he was hired to defend? I can't answer that question, because the truth is that history is complicated. No matter how many times I try to justify his actions or argue against him, there will always be a counter-argument. Maybe it's good that the memorial to him is a dinky little footbridge. It's a nod. It confirms his existence as a figure in our history. But if you look at it another way, it's a pretty pathetic memorial to a guy who did some pretty questionable stuff. I guess it's up to you to decide. What do you think? That was 16-year-old Stefano Pancheson. He produced that story as part of a project for his humanities class at City High School. One of his classmates, Asinda Feliz, produced our next story about her family's multi-generational connection to the Santa Cruz River. Asinda is also a sophomore at City High School. My family has lived in Tucson for five generations, and we've always lived near the Santa Cruz River. This is me walking right through the middle of the river in downtown Tucson. It's just dry sand, no water. That's me kicking some trash. There's a lot of trash in the riverbed, like soda cans, plastic bags, maybe even a shoe or a grocery cart. The river only runs when it rains really hard. Most of the year, it's just like the rest of the desert, dry. 
but it wasn't always that way. Uh, my mom, she remembers going there as a teenager and the river used to run so slow through there that they used to have rowboats. That's my tata. His mom was born in Tucson in the 1920s. And every weekend, they would all meet there, go horseback riding, get on the rowboats, and uh, there were so many of those uh, trees on, along the banks. And I mean, there were so many places to go for picnics. Hearing my thought to talk about the river like that changed the way I saw it. Before, all I saw was just a dry, empty ditch with some trees and some garbage. But after I heard his stories, when I went back to the river, it still looked the same, but in my imagination, I could see like more life and more beauty. It was like looking at an old woman and seeing for the first time how pretty she used to be. I wish it could have stayed that way forever. But by the time my grandparents were young and playing by the Santa Cruz River, the water wasn't running anymore. I guess that was because groundwater pumping had lowered the water table too far. I asked my Nana what the river was like when she was a kid. There was a lot of green trees and a lot of uh, green bushes and plants and even some areas where water would collect and it would, it would stay there for a long time. But mostly it was dry, like it is now. And when we had the monsoons in the summer months, sometimes we would get such a good rain that it would make the river run. And Everyone would go because it was the thing to do. It was something to see, water in the river. I love hearing my Nana and Tato's stories of playing in the river when they were kids. As a child, we used to pack a knapsack that my uncle had given us from when he was in the service. And we used to fill the canteen with water. And we used to hike in the river and have a little picnic. It was my backyard, my playground in the 60s. If it wasn't running, we'd go play in it. And then as we got older, we would ride our bikes in there. And that was a lot of fun, going up and down the banks and all through them. Gosh, it was like like being in a park, and in a big resort, all to ourselves. Damn. Not all of my grandparents' stories about the river are so sweet. One of their favorite stories to tell is about La Llorona. La Llorona is this eerie ghost story that is tied to rivers around the Southwest and Mexico, including the Santa Cruz River. Llorona is supposed to be a very beautiful woman. She wears a white dress. The story is that her husband cheated on her, so she drowned their children, and now her soul roams along the rivers, searching for them. My Tata likes to tell us that he once saw the Llorona when he and his cousin were teenagers. Me and my cousin were parked under a tree one time. We were just sitting there listening to the stereo, and uh, I looked up and, and I saw something up there, and. To me, it looked like a, a woman in a, in a white dress or something, and she was looking down at us. I told my cousin, I said, look, Leonard, I said, 
Look at that up there, and he looked. And he put that truck in gear, and we just took off from there, and I know what I saw. So, she was up in the tree. Whatever it was. Might have been a bag or something, but I saw something up there. Whenever it rained, my grandparents would take my mom and her siblings to the river to play. And when it was time to go, they'd tell them the story of the Yorona so everybody would get spooked and be ready to go home. I remember my mom and my aunt doing the same thing to me and my cousins. This is my aunt, Melinda. I remember every time it would rain, our parents would take us to the river and we'd stand along the side of it and throw rocks in there. Um, what about as a teenager? Honestly? Okay. As a teenager, we would go down to the river and we would drink and smoke and sometimes we'd have like bonfires and like party, listen to music um, and tell ghost stories. What do you do there now? Um, now, when it rains, we go to the river, and me and my daughter throw rocks in the river. I tell her stories about the Yorona, tell her all the stories that my dad told me, but I don't tell her the stories about being a teenager at the river. Okay. Um, what is your most favorite memory from the river? It was after a monsoon, and me, and your mom, and all you kids and Dee, we all went over there and and some horses were on the side and I remember we went and fed the horses. Yeah. And it was just fun. I remember that day too. It felt like a perfect day. My mom and my aunt were laughing a lot. They had bags of carrots and apples, but they wouldn't tell us why. It seemed like we walked forever in the riverbed and then we saw the horses. We were so surprised and excited. Now that I'm a teenager, I don't spend much time at the river. It just doesn't feel like a place to hang out anymore. And I'm pretty sure it's illegal to have a bonfire or stay there late at night. Nowadays, we just go to the mall or have a party at somebody's house. I heard that the city has a plan to release treated wastewater into the river so that it would run all year again. Even though that wouldn't be totally natural, I still like the idea. I'd be happy to see water in the river. The trees would come back, and in a way, it would bring my grandparents' stories back to life, too. And I'd start making my own memories there. The water would draw us all back, connecting us to the past and to each other. City High School sophomore Jacinda Feliz. Our final story today was produced by Sarah Bromer, who runs City High School's youth radio program. Recently, a group of teachers from City High School and the Palo Freire Freedom School participated in a staff retreat on Mount Lemon, and Sarah tagged along with her microphone. 
The teachers wrote and told stories about pivotal moments in their teaching careers. Sarah recorded one of those stories by City High School English teacher Krista Gipton and then interviewed one of the students Krista wrote about to produce our next story. Here's Sarah. Krista Gipton has been an English teacher for 17 years. She's good, what they call a veteran. And after 17 years, there are things that get easier, things you master. But some classroom challenges never go away. Each year, a new group of students arrives, diverse, unique, and often wary, and teachers have to find a way to build connections. In the following story, Krista reads an essay she wrote describing a turning point in her classroom. Student Julissa Bustamante shares her memories of that day, and junior Carlos Castro reads a poem. Here's Krista. I started to notice again that heartbreaking divide between the students who believe that they belong in the room and those who would rather be just about anywhere else, those who believe they have all the answers, and those who fear that their own voice might betray them, expose their lack of confidence. I knew better than to slip comfortably into the familiar trap of believing that they were just lazy or didn't care. I had watched them come alive on the basketball court or outside the front doors of school razzing each other about their musical tastes. There's life in there. And even though I know what it takes to do so, I just hadn't done enough to invite that life into the classroom. I remembered an article I had read about using a privilege walk and how powerful it can be to put a visual to the experience of those often left invisible in our classrooms. So I decided to try it. I knew I would need to build context, so I pulled out one of my favorite spoken word poems by Malcolm London, called The High School Training Ground. I handed out the lyrics to the poem, and then we watched the video of Malcolm performing. I kept my eyes subtly fixed on the students who I knew spent most days trying to be invisible, and I watched them sit up a little taller, lean in to hear a little better, and check the lyrics in front of them to see if they had heard him right when he said, Lockers left open like teenage boys' mouths when teenage girls wear clothes that cover their insecurities, but exposes everything else. Masculinity mimicked by men who grew up without fathers. Camouflage worn by boys who are dangerously armed, but need hugs. This poet seemed to be speaking to them in a way that I simply could not. We debriefed the poem, and the first people to speak were those who had not voluntarily spoken in my room the entire year. It was interesting. He was like a, like a troublemaker from Chicago, and like he's using his voice to let everybody know, like just because you're poor and everything, you could still get an education and you could be better than that. And did it resonate with you? Uh, it stood out to me because like. I've been thinking a lot about my education and what I'm going to do next after high school. So it gave me more motivation, I guess. I watched as my usual crowd of students who have all the answers looked on and for the first time listened instead of spoke. Like my parents didn't graduate high school. Like my whole family, none of them went to college. And like most of them are troublemakers. And I don't know, I don't want to be that way. I need to take school serious. And then it was time for the privilege walk. We took our conversation outside, where students lined up shoulder to shoulder. Then I would make a statement, and students would respond with actions. We all stood in a straight line, and Krista would ask us different questions. And if it related to us a lot, we'd step forward a step or 
If it didn't relate to us, we'd step back. It was pretty awkward. If you are right-handed, step forward. All but one move. I was like, what are we doing? Like, I, I don't know what was happening. If you can move through this world without fear of sexual assault, move forward. All the boys in the class move. I kind of saw, like, where it was going. Because, like, I think one of the questions was about reading and, like, if there was a lot of books in your home when you were younger and like most of the people stood up and I stood back and I was like the only one that stepped back. If you feel respected for your academic performance, step forward. My crowd of students who have all the answers proudly step forward and the words from the poem echo in my head. This is a training ground to sort out the regulars from the honors. A reoccurring cycle built to recycle the trash of the system. We keep going slowly and methodically separating from each other and I watch anxiously as they glance around and self-assess where they stand. This is a risk for all of us. No, it wasn't hard. It was just, I don't know, because I've always known like when I was little, I didn't get a good education on reading and like my literacy. So like, I don't know, it made me realize more, I guess. Like realize how much it, took a part of my education. I circle the group up for a debrief, and even though words are slow to come, the body language speaks volumes. At the beginning, I felt kind of like, what are we doing? Why are we in a straight line? But at the end, it, it made me open up my mind. Like, to like, because my really close friend was at the way beginning, and I was at the way back. And like... You always, when you see a person, it's always like stereotypical. And like when we did this activity, it really makes you realize like they may look like that person, but they're really not. You get what I'm saying? Like at school, you think like everything's good at home and that it, everything's perfectly fine, but like there's way more that goes on at home. So when they're at school, they put on a different like a cover-up, I guess. Then the floodgates open as some who ended in the front of the line start justifying their position, wearing their privilege as a deflection shield, unable to see that privilege and guilt do not have to be blood brothers. Then I reach out my heart to the brave young girl who is usually so quiet, as she tells the story of how her third-grade teacher told her that she was not a good reader and she never would be. Um, she'd make us read out loud in class, and, like, I stutter a lot, and I, like, overthink before I say anything and she would like rush me or like she'd be like you're taking too long we're going to the next person and like she never gave me the attention that I needed and I listen painfully as she says so I just gave up and now I feel so far behind and a wave of perspective crashes over the rest of the group as a new reality hits them some a reality all too familiar and the others a reality they can't even fathom we head back to the classroom to wrap up the day, and I'm still unsure if it was all worth it or not. How did it feel to say that in front of the class, to tell everybody that? Like a relief. Because I finally got to tell them like why like I don't like talking in front of classes and why I'm really shy, I guess. Yeah, my feelings did change towards Krista because like when I was telling everybody about how 
in second grade, like my teacher didn't really care about my reading. And I was telling her how now I, f I can see that it took a big chunk out of my education. And she really understood me and she told me like, if I need help with reading or writing or anything, I could always go to her. I felt pretty happy because I could finally have a teacher who not only understands my background, but understands my education and the way I was taught. What made you say that that day? Yeah, I feel like it was the walk that gave me more courage. I'm about to say my thank you and wish them a good day when a student's shaky voice interrupts me. May I say something? He is usually very silent and is the only Native American in the room. He pulls out the poem and points to a line. I am in honors, but go home with regular students who are soldiers in territory that owns them. He says, this is me. I care so much about education, but I go home and no one does there. He points again and said this, right here, this. These moments, although rocky, reaffirmed my belief that we must strive to connect to all students and bring their worlds into the classroom. We must use a variety of voices, faces, and stories so they all see they belong. Like Krista, she grew up on the same side of town as me. And like, I feel like she understands that part of me, like growing up in the ghetto and in poverty. What about in the past? Do you feel like teachers have understood that? No, I don't think so. Why? Because uh, they didn't grow up like where we were, and they would only be in our neighborhood to go to work, and they wouldn't see like what goes on outside. You should get to know the student and their background in order to teach them, I feel like, to get a better understanding of them as a person. We can no longer accept the narrative of division that some students do not care and will never have the answers. We must put the tools into their hands to write their own narratives. Were you, were you different in class after that day or were you just the same? Yeah, I was different because now I like talk. Like I'll raise my hand and ask a question. And before I wouldn't do that. because I feel like everybody understands me now and where I come from. And I feel more comfortable with communicating with the class. That story was produced by Sarah Bremer and featured City High School teacher Krista Gipton and City High junior Ulisa Bustamante. You've been listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Special thanks to Sarah Bremer for sharing these stories from City High with us. I'm Amanda Schager.